Good everyone. Flick uh, back in your Bibles to Jeremiah now. That's the passage we're looking at. Back to Jeremiah chapter 36. I also need your outline tonight because I've uh, printed some other verses we're going to look at on there just to save you flicking around your Bible and so forth. And now I'll pray before we get underway. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for that reminder from Hebrews that your word is living and effective. Uh, And so we pray that you'll be preparing our hearts now so that it might do your work in us. We pray that we'll be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. We pray that we'll be challenged where we need to be challenged. But in everything, Father, help us to respond rightly to your word, bringing ourselves into line with it rather than seeking to change it to suit ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just realised I haven't turned to Jeremiah 36. A couple of years ago here in Sydney, uh, there was a sort of an event. They had it in at the Opera House over a week. It was called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Did anyone see that when it was here? It was in about 2014. Uh, The idea was to have events where there were sort of thinkers and academics and that sort of people who would sort of push the boundaries and question the things that needed to be questioned and all that sort of stuff. Uh, From what I could see, it was more like the festival of safe Greens Party ideas, but uh, it was sort of the, all the ideas that are actually quite popular rather than actually dangerous. But at one of the events, they had a Christian on the panel. Uh, I think they might have invited him by accident, who knows. Uh, his name was Peter Hitchens. He's an English journalist. Uh, and his claim to fame really is that he's the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who at that time, sadly he's dead now, but at that time was one of the world's one of the big atheists, you know, the guy, he wrote the book, God is not great. And uh, he was sort of making a career for himself, going around upsetting Christians and saying why he thinks God doesn't exist. Anyway, his brother, Peter, was a journalist as well, they're both journalists, and he became a Christian as an adult. And he had been an atheist like his brother, but he became a Christian, of all things, an Anglican Christian in the Anglican church like ours. Uh, But anyway, they got him on there And so on the panel, he was there as the token Christian and they were talking about all their dangerous ideas like gay marriage and euthanasia and all these unpopular things, so they said. Uh, And then they turned to him and sort of right at the end of the night, they said, what do you think? And this is what he said, and I'll put it on your outline there. He just said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. That is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. And you can sort of see the surprise on all the other people's faces and the, the host, you know when the host has to appear to be fair-minded and that sort of thing, but it was sort of just scoffing at him. And so the idea was, well, well, how can, how can Christ, Christianity is just sort of old school and it, it can't be the most, it's the safest thing in the world, but he was actually right. The gospel, or more than that, the word of God, is the most dangerous thing there is. Uh, The idea, if you think about it, the idea that there is a personal God, a personal God who has revealed himself to humanity. And more than that, a personal God who has said, I will offer salvation to those who believe in the one I have sent. But then the other side of that coin, that one day that personal God will come back to judge every person or how they have responded to him and how they have lived their lives, that is actually the most dangerous idea that has ever been preached. And it's because of that that the word of God creates two sort of polar opposite reactions in people. 
See, if people understand it, the word of God will either create faith, will create repentance and faith, people will drop to their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? Or on the other hand, it will create angry defensiveness. When it creates indifference, that is because a person is so hard of heart that they haven't actually listened to what it said or it hasn't been clearly proclaimed. The word of God, if it is understood, must either create faith or sort of anger and contempt. They are the two logical reactions to the word of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it is either the stench of death to people or the aroma of life. The one thing it can't be is in the middle. And you see that so clearly, I think, in the story we're looking at today in Jeremiah 36. So turn there now. We only read a part of it, uh, we're looking at the whole chapter, so you'll need to follow along to, uh, to see where we're going. Now the first thing you see there is we're in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. Now if you uh, haven't been with us for our Jeremiah series, you're saying that means absolutely nothing to me, but the rest of you have learnt the table of kings and know them off by heart. No, you, you might, I hope, by now know that means that this is before the judgment has come. Jehoiakim was the bad king, remember, but God's judgment hasn't come yet. So that's where we are in the timeline. Uh, And Jeremiah has had all these words of prophecy. So we've been reading about them in the early chapters of the book. All these words that he's preached all over the place, at all different locations. And they've generally been words of judgment, bringing judgment on Judah. But now, God says, now it's time for sort of the the collected works. You've had enough to have the greatest hits record now, that sort of idea. And God says, what I want you to do is I want you to collect every word I've given you into one place so that everyone can hear every word I've given you. So look at verse 2. He says, take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah and all the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. And the thing is, God says, even now, if people hear this word and turn back to me, I will forgive them. Which is pretty incredible, given what we've seen in the book of Jeremiah so far. But God says, no, no, even now I'm willing to forgive them. Look at verse 3. It says, perhaps when the house of Judah hears about all the disaster I'm planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin. It's an important lesson to learn about God at that point that applies right through to the New Testament. God does not want to judge. The hope is always repentance and forgiveness. And there's something else to see there. Do you notice how each person individually is responsible for their response? Each one of them, his hope is that each one of them will turn from their evil and find forgiveness. And so if we briefly bring this forward to us, I think this actually reminds us of two really important things to remember as we preach the word of God to the world. The first thing that this reminds us is we must talk about God's judgment. That's the first thing. People cannot find salvation unless they know that they need to be saved. In every generation from Jeremiah till now, people have said, yeah, yeah, we want to preach the good side of the gospel but not the bad side. We, we don't want to tell people about judgment. But the thing is, you cannot understand Jesus and why he died if you don't understand that in doing that he was taking the wrath of God that we deserve. So we must warn people of God's judgment. But then this also reminds us we should never speak in judgment. That should never be all of our message. The end goal, the hope, 
is that people would find the salvation and the forgiveness that we have found. But back to our chapter. Come back with me. Jeremiah gets a scribe, Baruch, and Baruch's job is to write down every word that Jeremiah tells him, word for word. It's Baruch who we have to thank for the fact we have the book of Jeremiah. He's the guy who wrote it out. But then Jeremiah throws Baruch a curveball. He says, mate, there's a big event happening at the temple. Uh, Everyone's going to be there, but the thing is I'm not that welcome at the temple. I've sort of had a few bad experiences there. Uh, You're going to have to go and read out every word of mine to every person in Israel. That's your job. You're not just the scribe, you've got to be the mouthpiece as well. And Baruch does it, even though he knows that they'll probably lynch him for it. He does it in the hope that this time they will listen. And this time they'll turn and find forgiveness. Now I just want to pause at this point. Because I think Baruch was a real hero, wasn't he? Who had heard of Baruch before tonight even, unless you've been reading ahead in Jeremiah? Who'd heard of Baruch? Yet here is a hero of the faith. I think he deserves to be better known. He deserves to have children named after him. You know, uh, maybe your second one, Tom. But anyway... um, (laughs) But more than that, I think the reason I love Baruch is I think he is a parallel to us in this story. See, Jeremiah is not like us in some ways. Jeremiah was a prophet. And so we sort of say, yeah, yeah, Jeremiah, you've got to cop it. That's your job. Sort of like sometimes people think that about me. They go, well, you're, you're ordained and we pay you, Phil, so you, you come and tell people about God's word and, and save me the job. You, you know, that's, that's your job, Phil. Well, we sort of think Jeremiah's different to us. He should cop it a bit. He's a prophet of God. But Baruch was like us. Baruch never got the direct words from God. Baruch's job was to take the written word of God and to share it with people, to read it out, which is our job, isn't it? In the same way that's our job to take the word of God, the message of the apostles and the prophets, the gospel, It's our job to share that with our family and our work colleagues and our friends, even if sometimes they don't want to hear it. So be encouraged and be challenged by the example of Baruch. But there's something else wonderful about him that makes him helpful for us, I think. If you just had chapter 36, you would think, Baruch, what a hero. Sort of gospel man of steel, you know, that sort sort of thing. He just walks in, fearless to preach the gospel, whatever people think. But there's a little story later on in the book where I sort of wonder if Baruch sort of thought to himself, because he was the one who wrote it down, if he sort of thought to himself, I might have given a more positive picture of myself than I deserve in chapter 36. Come to chapter 45. It's a little chapter. Flick over there now. Uh, You can read it later on in its entirety. It'll take you one minute. Um, But uh, the the thing is, when you read it, you see when Baruch got told he had to do this, he didn't want to do it which is a lot like us sometimes, isn't it? There's a little bit of it there in verse 3, have a look there, where this is Baruch's response. He says, Woe is me, because the Lord has added misery to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and have found no rest. Baruch is just like us. Baruch, like us, sort of thought, I don't want people to think I'm the crazy religious person. I don't want the king to hate me. I don't want to lose my job. I sort of want to be popular and I've got ambitions and you've got to keep the king on side if you're, you're going to be a successful scribe in Judah. But then God makes a promise to him, a promise that he wouldn't be killed, which is a good starting point. And that was a real possibility. They would have just killed him. That's what they did to most of the other prophets. But God says, no, 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 I'll look after you. But then God also says what I think is one of the most challenging verses in Jeremiah. 
Verse 5. God says, but as for you, do you seek great things for yourself? See what that's such a good question? See what God's saying to him? Baruch, stop worrying so much about your own social standing. You see what he says next? Stop seeking. Stop seeking great things for yourself. Do you worry too much about your own career, perhaps? Do you worry too much, Baruch, about what other people think of you? Stop seeking after those things, Baruch, and focus more on what really matters, doing my will, glorifying my name, sharing the hope of salvation with people who are under my judgment. Isn't that a challenge we all need to hear? That's why I love Baruch. His struggle is the same struggle I have. Are we more concerned with what people think of us, in which case we'll just stay silent, or are we more concerned with people knowing God and glorifying Jesus and finding the salvation we've found? Then we'll speak. Baruch obviously heard that rebuke and took it to heart. So flick back now to chapter 36, because in the next section there, verses 9 to 18, Baruch goes and does it. Uh, He reads it out at the temple in a place where everyone can hear it, And there doesn't, sadly, seem to have been much of a reaction. There's no widespread turning back to God. The nation of Judah didn't suddenly repent en masse. But some of the king's officials and the nobles heard it. People like Micaiah and Zedekiah. And for those following, who's Zedekiah going to be in a few years' time? He's going to be the king. Two kings after this guy, because the next guy didn't last long. Uh, So here they are, and they sort of think, hang on, there's something in this. And so Baruch has to read it out again for them. Remember, he was scared to read it the first time. It's his worst nightmare. They say, come in and read it for us now, Baruch. And he's like, oh, I was hoping to get out of here after this. And they quiz him and he confirms these are Jeremiah's words, word for word. I think there might have been a little bit of sort of self-protection in that for Baruch. Blame Jeremiah. (laughs) Don't blame the messenger. That sort of idea. And you see their response. It's really interesting. Look at verse 16. When they had heard all the words, they turned to each other in fear. I think we're meant to see that as a positive response from these people. That is the right... When God says my judgment is coming, the only sane response is fear. But I think there was something else to the fear, because look at what they say. They said to Baruch, we must surely tell the king all these things. So I think there's fear of God, but there's also fear of the king. They sort of know, we've got to tell the king what's been said but we don't know how the king's going to respond. And they had a fair idea of how he'd respond, so they showed some courage. Look at verse 19. The officials said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah must hide yourselves and tell no one where you are. So they showed some courage. They said, we're going to look after you, we're going to keep you safe. But then it says in verse 20, they came to the king at the courtyard. And so now we're at the third reading of Jeremiah's scroll, but not by uh, Baruch now. He's, He's been made safe uh, and this is where things really heat up, literally. Uh, a poor guy called Jehudi, who doesn't just struggle with having that name, he also gets the job of reading the scroll out for the king. And they all gather around, it's winter, so the king is sitting there with a fire burning in front of him. Uh, and to say that the king rejected the word of God is an understatement. Look at verse 23. It says, as soon as Jehudi would read three or four columns... Jehoiakim would cut the scroll with a scribe's knife and throw the columns into the blazing fire until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire in the brazier. There's indifference to the word of God 
But no one was in any doubt as to what Jehoiakim thought of Jeremiah and God's word, were they? This is a powerful statement. He was consciously saying, I know what it's saying and each little bit I am rejecting. Each little bit I am burning up because that's what I think of it. And there were some brave men there who stood up to him, men like El Nathan and Deliah and Gemariah, uh, but most of them just went along with him. And the only thing that saved Jeremiah and Baruch was that the king couldn't find them. God had hidden them. And other than those three brave men, the response of the other people there was actually just as sad as Jehoiakim's response. Look at verse 24. It says, As they heard all these words, the king and all of his servants did not become terrified or tear their garments. Tearing their garments was a way of saying, I am repentant. I'm sorry, God. But there was none of that. See, there's the response of anger to God's word and contempt like Jehoiakim. But just as bad is apathy. God is warning them about his judgment. He's offering them the hope of forgiveness. The right response is fear leading to repentance and faith. But there was none of that. All there was was contempt and apathy. Which now brings it forward to us. What are the lessons for us from this? If you have a look in your outline, I've printed a couple of headings there. The first lesson is that we shouldn't be surprised when we see these exact same responses to God and his word. When you first become a Christian, at least when I first became a Christian, I shouldn't put my experience onto you, when I first became a Christian, when I sort of understood that joy of knowing God through faith in Christ, I thought, why doesn't everyone get this? I thought, why why doesn't everyone, when they hear this, just drop to their knees in repentance and, and turn to God? Why aren't there more people at church? was sort of my reaction. I went to this small little church when I became a Christian. I just looked around and thought, why, why aren't other people wanting this? And, and in my arrogance, I sort of thought it must be because I haven't told them yet uh, that other people can't do as good a job as me as explaining the gospel. And so I quickly learned, no, that wasn't it. You see, you can sort of think everyone will hear the word of God and drop to their knees in repentance and faith. But then you see these responses in people. And it can make you question. You can sort of think, well, am I wrong? Are they all right? But the New Testament actually tells us to expect these sorts of responses to God's word. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 on your outline. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Or 2 Corinthians 2.16 that I alluded to before, says, to some we are an aroma of death leading to death, we being people who preach the gospel, but to others an aroma of life leading to life see the reality is the gospel will create those different outcomes in people those different responses sadly there will be people who respond with apathy to the word of god because they haven't listened or because their hearts are hard but when people do hear it and understand it there will be these two responses don't let that rock you when people respond to the gospel with contempt and anger and judgment Pray that people respond with faith and repentance, but we should never be surprised when people respond with ridicule and self-righteousness and all those other things. In fact, give me that response over apathy any day. Give me someone who gets angry at the gospel because then they've heard it and they understand it. Second point to take is to be warned by the reaction of Jehoiakim. See, what this passage is is a reminder to us that we should treat God's word correctly. 
In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that everything, all the examples written in the Old Testament are written as examples to us so that we would do it differently to the way the Israelites reacted. And I can't help but think, as I read this, of so many modern so-called Christians who are just like Jehoiakim and they just cut the word of God. You know what I mean? They just cut out the bits of the Bible that they don't like to come up with a God who they're happy to follow. You know the way, sadly, people try to cut out the bits of God's word that don't fit in with their picture of what God should be like. And you're seeing that all the time at the moment where there's all these people who've decided they like three words from the New Testament, God is love, and I'm going to cut out the whole rest of the New Testament and then I'm going to define God and define love in a way I like and then that's the Christianity I'm going to believe in. That is nothing new. That's just the latest version of I'll accept what I like from God's word and I'll cut out the rest and disregard it. Jehoiakim wasn't the first to do it and he won't be the last. But as followers of Jesus, we do not have that right. Jesus made it clear not the smallest dot from the smallest letter of God's word will disappear. And part of becoming a Christian is saying from now on, this is the authority for me. God's word is the authority for me. And if I struggle with what this says, then it's my mind that needs to change, not God's word. And it's my heart that needs to change, not God's word. That's why we read from Hebrews chapter 4 before, the whole chapter is a warning not to harden our hearts against God's word like the Israelites did. But then after the warning, it gives us this wonderful but scary picture of God's word. Have a look at your outline from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living and effective. That's sort of this wonderful picture. The word of God is powerful. It, it, it works. It's still alive. It does what God says it will do. But then it gets scary. Look what it says. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. See, when the word of God digs into you, and makes you squirm, and makes you feel uncomfortable, challenges our, our preconceptions in our mind, when it does those things, that's it working. That is God's word at work in you. So our response shouldn't then be to say, I'm going to cut out that bit because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm going to cut out that bit because I don't like it. Or then rationalise, oh, it doesn't apply to me, it just applies to those Christians over there. Now, God's word is meant to judge our hearts and our minds. Our hearts and our minds are not meant to judge God's word. See, if only Jehoiakim had accepted that, things would have been very, very different for Judah at that time. But, and my final point for tonight, the thing is, Jehoiakim was just the first of thousands of people, and they're still doing it today, who have tried to get rid of the word of God. People have always tried to burn the Bible. Dictators over the years have tried to burn every copy of the Bible. Do you know what happens when people do that? Then people say, I want to read it. If it's that dangerous and suddenly people smuggle Bibles in and suddenly people become Christians, communists and Islamic states have tried to ban it and then people suddenly say, oh, that thing I've ignored, I want to read it now. If you want to ban it, I'll read it. And today there's a whole industry of so-called scholars and academics who devote themselves to trying to discredit the word of God. But they never succeed. 
Have you noticed that? They've been trying it for 2,000 years, but they never succeed. God's word always prevails. And it did in Jeremiah 36. Just jumping out of the last section, verses 27 to 32. You can read it in full later on. But do you know what happened after the king burned the scroll? Probably went to bed that night saying, ah, I've done it now, I got rid of God's word and Jeremiah, I can get on with living my life how I like. What did God do? God said, hey, Jeremiah and Baruch, write it out again. And then this time, though, put another chapter on the end, which has a special word of the horrible things I'm going to do to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's going to get his own little chapter just for him, about my judgment of him for what he did to my word. You see, for 2,000 years, people have tried to silence the gospel. People have tried to kill off Christians, but the word of God just keeps coming. And in fact, the history of the church is the more persecuted it is, the more people try to silence the Bible, the more the gospel grows. And at times like the Reformation, it seems like only a handful of people are sticking to God's word. But in the end, God wins. God's word prevails. There is a great quote from the 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon. You might have heard it. Uh, And in his day, the authority of the Bible was under attack. And so people said to him, Spurgeon, you are... They probably said Charles, that was his name. But anyway, they they said, Charles, you are the greatest preacher in England of our day. What are you going to do to defend the Bible? And this is what he said. It's on your outline. He said, defend the Bible... I would as soon defend a lion, unchain it, and it will defend itself. It's right, isn't it? So when people write silly articles in the newspaper attacking the Bible, or even worse, when people who claim to be Christians or Christian leaders, when they deny the truth of the gospel or they move away from God's word, it's right to be saddened. It's right even to be angry. It should make you angry, righteously angry. But don't let it rock you. Don't let it make you doubt. God is still in control. Jesus still reigns and God's word is still living and active and effective. Our job, we don't really need to defend the Bible. You can if you like. But what's our job? Our job is to follow Baruch's example and just read it out and let it go and it will do the work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and we pray that we would not fall into that trap of standing in judgment over it. Instead, give us humble hearts that are willing to bring our minds and our hearts into line with your word rather than try to bring it into line with what we think. And Father, we pray that we would learn from the example of Baruch. We pray that we...